All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is March 21st, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is on the East Palestine Rail Disaster. This is a presentation by the Railway Action Committee of the Labor Commission of the Party of Communist USA. And without further ado, we can go ahead and get started with the presentation. All right, today's class is on the East Palestine Railroad disaster and what we'll be learning. In the first section, we're gonna go over railroad deregulation. Uh, we'll specifically be talking about the Staggers Rail Act, which was passed in 1980 and set the table for the consolidation of the railroad industry and precision scheduled railroading. Then we're gonna talk about the derailment. First, we're gonna read the statement put out by Railroad Workers United the Monday following the derailment. And then we're going to look into a short timeline of the events leading up to it and the derailment itself. We'll also watch a couple of videos courtesy of More Perfect Union on the subject. And then our last section will be on the aftermath. Uh, this will be a timeline going through the events. I believe the cutoff is uh, for the events we have is March 14th. So uh, keep in mind, this is a fluid situation and it's there's still updates going on right now. So all of the information that we have on these slides will not be up to date. Uh, Section 1, Railroad Deregulation. Right here we have the Staggers Rail Act, and this is a picture of uh, Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter signing the Staggers Rail Act into law on October 14, 1980. In 1887, the 49th Congress enacted the Interstate Commerce Act to combat monopolistic practices of the railroad robber barons of the day. This act demanded that rates be reasonable and just, but stop short of giving the government the power to fix specific rates. This allowed rates to be kept higher where competition existed, but more importantly, made rebates and discrimination illegal. In this definition of discrimination, we are referring to the railroad's ability to lower rates for certain customers, including politicians and other monopolistic companies from different industries. These regulations stayed in place for over 100 years with minor amendments and adjustments. But in 1980, President Jimmy Carter signed into law the Staggers Rail Act. This was a bill to reform the economic regulations of railroads through significant deregulation. These deregulations allowed the rail carriers to establish any rate for rail service, remove the scope of authority to control rates preventing discrimination, and the dismantling of the collective rate-making machinery among railroads that began in 1976. Deregulation is touted as being the tool that saved the railroad industry. It is said that worker injuries declined, that rail-related catastrophes went down, and that profits being redirected to truck and airline industries were able to be returned to the rail industry. Is this the truth, though? In our day, deregulation allows the railroads to become outright monopolies, Class 1 rail carriers have a stranglehold, on the industry, and with that stranglehold, they are free to make their own rules. Profit is the only determining factor when the equations are drawn, and the quality of life of the workers, along with the safety of the community, has been cut entirely out of the math. Railroads have not updated the braking systems used on their trains since the 1800s. Workers are being forced to operate as one-man crews. Pay for the workers is not matching inflation rates. 
government officials, corporate monopolies, and lobbyists have taken a firm grasp around the controls of this industry, and without any regulation, they are in many ways literally driving the train off the rails in a never-ending drive for more profit. Deregulation has halted the need for modernization, and the only way forward is regulation and a nationalization of the railroads. Most importantly, in relation to the Staggers Rail Act, it must be noted that discrimination allowed for railroad monopolies to become lobbyists and servants of the very policymakers that regulate the safety of modern railroads. There is no impetus to increase safety at any cost when the railroad lobbyists can freely work with politicians. There is no need for oversight of safety when it may affect the profit and return of policymakers who have investments in the railroads. We cannot expect safety, modernization, or quality of life when both the monopolies who run the business and the policymakers who enforce the rules are profiting off the corners cut at every bend. And we're going to move on to the schedule of railroading, which is the modern-day managing philosophy of the railroad companies. PSR, or Precision Schedule Railroading, came into being in the 1990s after deregulation and privatization of railroads. Privatized railroads tried to find ways to reduce the number of crew starts through increasing the length and tonnage of trains. A recent investigation found that Norfolk Southern's top executives made millions of dollars in incentive bonuses after the company hit a financial target and made its trains longer. The target is calculated by dividing operator costs by operating revenues, and records have shown that has grown in significance at Norfolk Southern in recent years. What PSR tries to optimize is productivity in operations and increased profit in service. Railroad's main charge to customers is by gross tonnage miles, increased tonnage of trains, increased length of trains, decreased idle rare car time, reduce the time allowed for safety inspections. All of these metrics reduce the number of crew starts, number of crews needed to operate trains. What PSR does not measure is safety. And here's a note at the bottom, private railways use other metrics like prioritizing the trains to make the origin to destination trip in scheduled time to the customers, which creates more complications and intensity in labor. The STB, Surface Transportation Board, Executive Chair quoted, I believe in letting markets decide, but there has to be a market. Pretending to borrow from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Something wicked this way comes. Should voluntary actions not suffice? Under PSO, or Prescription Scheduled Railroading, the railroads have cut the work for us by nearly a third over the past six years. They have reduced the number of thorough inspections of rail cars, along with other service cuts. Under the PSR model, the largest railroads have lengthened trains to as long as three miles. About 2020, 2021, and 2022 has seen more than 10 fatalities for on-duty employees on the railroad and over 3,000 non-fatal injuries reported to the FRA, Federal Railroad Association. And we're gonna play a short video before we break the discussion. 
We just saw in the middle of the country a giant chemical fireball, 100-foot flames, and very few people asking questions about what led up to this. So there was a derailment in 2012 in New Jersey. Releasing 20,000 gallons of dangerous chemicals and noxious gas into the air. There's children in the town that are being affected by this. And there was pressure on regulators to do something about those kinds of trains. And so the Obama administration had a rule proposed to better regulate these trains. The National Transportation Safety Board told the regulatory agency, said, listen, these regulations should broadly cover not just oil, they should cover what's known as class two chemicals. And the chemical industry lobbyists went to work pressuring the regulatory agency to limit the definition of what a high hazard flammable train is. Limit it in a way that the train in Ohio, that kind of train ended up not being classified as a high hazard flammable train. The NTSB closely monitoring four cars that are filled with vinyl chloride. It has been found to be linked to cancer. Trains that were subject to this rule were going to be required to use a special kind of new braking system to try to deter or at least reduce the damage from derailments. ECP delivers the unmatched performance of air brakes with the precision of electronic communications. Most trains in the country are still using technology from the Civil War era, but the moment the government was considering making it a mandate. The railroad industry's changed its tune. It cited cost concerns to pressure against that rule. We want to see federal regulations when they're necessary, not just uh, in reaction to a headline in the, in, in the Washington Post. Obama's rule included that measure to expand the larger use of those brakes on the nation's rail system. But in that 2016 election year, the Republican Party got about $6 million from the rail industry. And Senate Republicans started beating the drum for Trump to repeal the rule. Donald Trump repealed the brake rule so that the industry does not have to even start to use these kinds of brakes. One former Federal Railroad Administration regulator told us that these brakes, which are known as ECP brakes, would have mitigated a disaster like this. And we just learned today, after the publication of our story, federal officials told us that this train did not have those brakes on the train. Um, I like I've heard about this. I didn't do too much research on my own, but I'm still confused. What even is like vinyl chloride used for, and why is it on the rails? Is that the most like safest way to transport it? I'm I'm just kind of confused on that aspect. That's it. Uh, vinyl chloride is a component compound in very common plastics such as PVC piping. Uh, if you have any PVC piping facilities near you, they probably use vinyl chloride. It's also used to uh, create polyvinyl carbonates that are used on airplanes and stuff like that. So it's just a precursor compound that's used to make other commodities. All right, that answered your question, comrade. Yeah, the last guy hit it pretty well. I actually helped build the plant that those chemicals were headed towards, and that's what they do. They turn that chemical into a used to make little plastic pellets, which are then distributed to other factories and whatnot to use it for their own individual purposes. But I did have a question as well. Now, I know that this particular issue happened because of a braking system, but I'm curious who is in charge of the maintenance of the tracks federally? Is that done by each private company? Do they do the inspections of their own tracks or is that more of a federal issue? I believe it's done privately by each company. I'm not 100% sure on that, but. All right, thank you, comrades.
Thank you, comrade. So one thing I've learned slowly becoming an adult is that like not everything is in one basket. And what I mean by that is you would think that the railroad company is in charge of, of the brakes. So my question is, who is in charge? Because just like airplanes, the company buys the, the trains and then and then their business is to ship things. So whose responsibility is it technically, legally, to ensure that the brakes get on even if they don't like it? Is it the the train builders or the train buyers? Thank you. Well, the trains have brakes. They have air brakes, but they're manual air brakes. And, the, uh, and you'll see it'll be explained in a statement from uh, Railroad Workers United after this. When you have just regular air brakes, it breaks from the front. And then it goes in like a domino effect to each cob throughout the train. What these EC brakes would have done is would have sent a signal. All the cars on the train would have, would break at the same time. Uh, wouldn't necessarily prevent the derailment, but it would have limited the damage. All right, thank you, comrade. I have a question, real quick. It was just a question on the precision scheduled railroading. Is this just a thing in the United States, or is there similar stuff overseas? Because I've seen other rail disasters recently, and I don't know if that's involved there too. Whether it's called precision schedule or rail railroading or not overseas, it's essentially the same philosophy. Uh, precision schedule railroading started in Canada, so it is it is an import. It's not a, a U.S. born philosophy. All right, thank you, comrade. Thank you. Um, just wanted to add in response to comrade question. I'm not 100% on this, but to my knowledge, it is the private companies that do the maintenance, that own the cars, that own the rail line. It is federal regulations, both through the regulatory boards and some of the laws that had been passed with the uh, Federal Railroad Act that give the trains mandates like you have to have some for whatever amount of tonnage, there's certain inspections, and then depending on cargo as well, there are certain inspections that have to be done. Of course, this can all get watered down with lobbyists. So, as it right. has been. Thank you for that, comrades. What I found interesting about that video is how it kind of, uh, and I believe it is from like for quote unquote progressive leaning Democrat. Um, how it tries to paint a picture of oh, if the Obama administration only implemented to this regulation and everything would have been peaches and cream. I mean, think of how easy I was actually watching a um, an ad from the a late night show from the 1980s with uh, Gus Hall was on it and he was running for president and he was talking about his agenda and he mentioned nationalizing the railroads. And imagine how much easier it would be if this country had the guts to, you know, follow the Constitution and, you know, nationalize the railroads since it technically is in our constitution that the federal government has a say in interstate commerce. And it's just shocking to me how we're still using infrastructure that's from the Civil War era. And I imagine if the Democrats try doing any kind of infrastructure bill, it'll be a nightmare because they're instead of trying to nationalize the railroads, it'll be through this mixed private, private state corporate bureaucracy which will balloon the amount of money it's going to cost to actually renew the railroads when we could just simply nationalize them, establish fresh lines of bureaucracy, and, you know, build high-speed rail, you know, invite some Chinese engineers to come in and teach Americans how to build high-speed rail. All right. Thank you, comrade. Hey, comrades. I was just wondering, um, you said uh, 
The Stagger's Rail Act allowed policymakers to invest in the railroads. I'm just wondering, um, I don't have a laptop. I'd love to look and see like which policymakers are invested, do have stock in, in this particular railroad and others. I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure the details on what rail makers uh, have stock in Norfolk Southern. Um, but I do know that there is one, uh, I believe a Republican congressman who did work as a lobbyist for the railroad industry. That is probably going to be a holdup on any new regulations they try to put up now. But with that said, if there's no more questions, I just wanted to make a quick comment. In 1980, when the Staggers Rail Act was passed, there was 33 class one freight railroads. Now in 2023, there's currently seven. But last week, the Biden administration approved a merger between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern Railroads. So pretty soon, we're going to be down to six Class 1 freight railroads. And not only are they monopolies, they operate together as cartels, as we saw with the negotiation process of the contract and the fight last year. Thank you, comrade. How can we consider these in totality uh, privately owned rails uh, if the Biden admin is signing off on whether or not they're able to merge together? And they also get a majority of their funding from like the bureaucracy, like state politicians and lawmakers and stuff like that. Well, any company merges have to be approved by the government. It's not, that's not just the way in railroads. Like, if any banks merge together, that has to be approved by federal regulators. Uh, so that's just common practice. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I was just going to say, I believe it's the SEC that the Security and Exchange Commission's that has to approve mergers, especially when this merger may create the seemingness of a monopoly. Like, for example, um, the Sprint uh, T-Mobile merger was held up for the longest of time because of that very issue. But the railroads are still privately owned with everything. It's just they need regulatory okay for that never mind that we're not enforcing antitrust laws thank you all right thank you for that comrades we'll go ahead and hop back to the presentation all right the derailment now we're going to start with the statement from railroad workers united that was published on february 7th titled fiery ohio train wreck the result of psr railroad workers united condemns the dangerous and historically unsafe practices by class one rail carriers that resulted in this catastrophe that will impact the community of East Palestine, Ohio for many years, if not forever. The root causes of this wreck are the same ones that have been singled out repeatedly associated with the hedge fund initiated operating model known as precision scheduled railroading or PSR but risky practices such as ever longer and heavier trains even preceded PSR. The train that wrecked is a case in point. 9,300 feet long, 18,000 tons. Other hallmarks of modern day railroading include deep cuts to both maintenance and operating employees, poor customer service, deferred maintenance to rolling stock and infrastructure, long working hours and chronic fatigue, limited on-the-job training, and a high employee turnover. Norfolk Southern Train NS32N, with 150 cars on the manifest, derailed on February 3rd 
at 8.55 p.m. It consisted of three locomotives, 141 loads, and nine empties. The train had a crew of three at the time of the wreck, consisting of an engineer, a conductor, conductor training. 20 of its loaded cars were considered hazmat by the railroad. 10 of those hazmat cars were involved in the 50-car pileup. Of those 10, five cars contained vinyl chloride, all of which were damaged and or burned, with one of those leaking by design to relieve explosive pressure. At this time, the immediate cause of the wreck appears to have been a 19th century style mechanical failure of the axle on one of the cars and an overheated bearing, leading to derailment and then jackknifing tumbling cars. There is no way in the 21st century, save from a combination of incompetence and disregard to public safety, that such a defect could still be threatening our communities. 40% of the weight of NS32N was grouped at the rear third of the train, which has always been bad practice and made more dangerous with longer, heavier trains. This fact almost certainly made the wreck dynamically worse. But increasingly, the PSR-driven carriers, driven to cut costs and crew time by any means necessary, cut corners and leave crews and the public at risk. The crew was able to uncouple the locomotives and move them to safety, preventing an even bigger tragedy. This would not have been possible under the various management schemes now being proposed to operate such trains with single-person crews. Further, because train 32N carried the standard crew of two or more workers, they were able to immediately take the necessary emergency measures to ensure a safe and effective response. <clears throat> the short-term profit imperative, the so-called cult of the operating ratio of NS and the other class one railroads has made cutting costs, employees, procedures, and resources the top priority. In this case, NS and the other carriers have eliminated many of the critical mechanical positions and locations necessary to guarantee protection against these kinds of failures. Simultaneously, they regularly petition the regulators at the Federal Railway Administration for relief from historically required maintenance and inspections. The wreck of train 32N has been years in the making. What other such train wrecks await us remains to be seen, but given the modus operandi of the Class 1 rail carriers, we can no doubt expect future disasters of this nature. Rail workers warned us about disaster like this. I heard firsthand months ago about the corporate practice of precision scheduled railroading. Precision scheduled railroading is uh, shorter staff, longer hours, longer trains, less safety, less maintenance. Do I have all that right? Oh, you got it all right. I okay. mean, a lot of the derailments that you're seeing on national TV is one of a few things. It's lack of maintenance on the track, or they've cut the track gangs too short, and they can't get out to fix it, or they've cut the carmen's, which is the union that works on the rail cars. So uh, we have one derailment here in Northeast Ohio where a wheel flange was very thin, and it picked a switch, 
and derailed the entire train. Luckily, it was full of candle wax and not something highly volatile. Rail workers tried to strike over this stuff, but were stopped by Congress. A few weeks later, and here we are. Several Norfolk Southern cars of toxic, highly volatile chemicals exploded fantastically in the tiny town of East Palestine, Ohio, 20 miles from where I grew up. So I met Clyde in East Palestine to ask him about it. It looks like a faulty bearing uh, caused a catastrophic derailment. These railroads are turning profits hand over fist. They've cut their workforce to bare bones, and now they're paying the price for it because the wheels are falling off the train, basically. Carmen were inspecting cars about three minutes per car. That's always been the industry standard. Now it's 90 seconds per car. Is that because of PSR? Yes, it's a rush job right now. And these guys are under pressure. I mean, they're working men and women. And, you know, if they don't hurry up and get this car done, they're going to be fired. Great points. So I went to a press conference with Norfolk Southern and Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to ask them about this. What could precision scheduled railroad have to do with the axle failure that caused the derailment? I have no idea if it's a mechanical issue. Rail, precision scheduled railroading is a management process. Not a great answer, and that's probably because Norfolk Southern let a worker take the fall rather than a single corporate executive showing up in the town that they polluted to be held accountable. You see, Wall Street owns Norfolk Southern. 74% of shares are owned by a who's who of infamous hedge funds. And this is the business model that they demand profit at any cost. And disaster like this is simply a cost of doing business. They cut everything, make all the money, and, and pay off disasters in tiny flyover towns from the profit. But instead of answering for any of that, they're betting that the corporate media, under the same pressure for extreme profit as railroads, will only ask questions about how much cancer people will get and not why this preventable disaster happened. All right, now this is the trip and the derailment. The train NS32M, which is built in Madison, Illinois, and headed east to Conway, Pennsylvania, swapped out crews in Decatur, Illinois. This crew would experience trouble while running their route between Decatur, Illinois and Peru, Indiana. The train severed a knuckle between two cars at Attica, Indiana. This occurred while the train was going downhill and while in dynamic braking due to PSR-induced improper braking. At milepost 79.9 on the Fort Wayne line, the 23rd car's axle had a recorded temperature of 38 degrees above the ambient temperature. When it passed the next detector at mile marker 69.01, it had increased to 103 degrees. Finally, at milepost 49.81 on the east side of East Palestine, the recorded temperature was 253 degrees above ambient. That triggered an audible alarm over the radio, informing the crew to stop the train. The engineer began to slow the train, but by then it was too late. The axle failed and the car derailed. An automated emergency brake application was initiated and the train came to a stop. The crew reported to the Cleveland East Dispatcher that their train was on the ground and on fire. The crew applied handbrakes on two cars 
at the head of head end of the train, uncoupled the power, and moved it about a mile away. Now, this is a short thing on the Norfolk Southern detector alarm thresholds. NS has established the following hot bearing detector alarm thresholds and criteria for bearings according to the NTSB. Between 170 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit, warm bearing, non-critical, stop and inspect. A difference between bearings on the same axle greater than or equal to 115 degrees non-critical, stop and inspect. Greater than 200 degrees Fahrenheit, critical, set out rail car. According to the NTSB, three hot bearing detectors, also known as hot box detectors, recorded temperature increases on the bearing in question over the course of 30 miles. But only the third reading triggered an alert to stop and inspect. And here's another video courtesy of More Perfect Union. Let's talk about the flaming axle that appears to have derailed the Norfolk Southern train in East Palestine, Ohio. Doorbell video shows the axle overheating and failing about 20 miles before the train derailed. But initial reports say the crew was only notified about a mechanical issue shortly before the derailment. So why did that alert take so long to reach the crew if the axle was overheating for 20 miles? We're going to follow the NTSB investigation as it unfolds. Their main job is to answer why this happened, and their first update on this was issued last night. No surprise, they suspect the overheated axle to be at fault. Rail workers have suggested that precision scheduled railroading has a lot to do with all of this. PSR is the corporate practice that's been piling up profits for the railroads lately. In short, it means cutting costs and doing more work with less people and safety resources. And it governs every system in the rail industry, including those designed to catch problems. So let's hear more from a union leader and 22-year railroad veteran. The defect detectors have changed. Uh, they created several years back what's called a trending defect detector. Let's say defect detector number one, this car passes, it sees it heating up. It sends a signal to the dispatch center and it talks to the next detector. The train passes the second detector. It sees the heat increasing. There's another alarm sent. The train crew's not hearing any of this, though. It's kind of like an algorithm, so to speak. They're watching the car. What should be happening is the dispatch center notifying the crew to keep the check on this car. But that ain't the times we live in, because it's hurry up, get the train across the railroad, let's make the fat cats on Wall Street happy, turn a profit. And now, if that crew it's the third defect detector. That car could be way too hot and be in the catastrophic uh, situation as this one was. Then the crew gets an alarm and sometimes it's too late. So when something starts going wrong, the train crew doesn't always hear about it. Dispatch does and they tell the crew when to check it out. But PSR has put major strain on that critical system that's supposed to keep all of us safe from a disaster like this. Everybody on the railroad, every craft took an extreme hit with PSR. It consolidated all these dispatchers' uh, territories to one desk where you might have had four or five dispatchers. Now you got one guy handling doing the work of five people. The train dispatcher might have went from covering about 200 and something miles of territory upwards to a thousand. They have all these trains on the screen they're taking care of. They could have heard this silent alarm that we don't hear on the train, and they're so busy they couldn't get to that. Clyde is talking about an example of what the current conditions are like. We'll get answers as the NTSB investigation unfolds, but rail workers have warned us about the dangers of PSR and extreme profiteering long before this disaster happened. We'll break for discussion. All right. 
Uh, I have the float breakdown of shares for Norfolk Southern. Uh, so 89% of it is institutionally held. The float is the amount of shares on market, right? So the amount of shares on market, 89% of it is institutionally held. Uh, of that, the Vanguard Group, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan are the top three investors in Norfolk Southern. The rest of it is mostly retail, so like day traders, uh, people like that. But most of that are the insiders, so like the CFO and CEO, stuff like that. All right. Thank you, comrade. I just want to make a quick comment that, well, this right around the time this was happening, we had a Chinese weather balloon fly over our country and we acted like it was an act of war. We shot it down. And when Monopoly Capital and the hedge funds that needed growing profits year over year over year really attacked us with this and the media and a lot of us in general acted like this was no big deal and just the cost of doing business. But this is class warfare and we can't look at it any other way. That's all I have. Thank you, comrade. The greed is unbelievable. Like you've got three guys, they're, they're considering like, you know, uh, making that one, get one, well, one worker, you know, and you've got 140 cars worth of merchandise. I mean, you think of how much a tractor trailer driver is getting paid to carry one load, which is probably the equivalent or less than, than one of these cars. And their response, they're, you know, that's paying, <laughs> paying the wages of another worker or five or 10 is nothing considered to the amount of money that they're making. I just, the greed is unbelievable. That's all I got. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So <clears throat> essentially uh, the same thing that we're seeing happening right now with uh, the railroad system here in this country happened in the United Kingdom under Margaret Thatcher. Practically um, due to Thatcher's privatization uh, by the year 1999, 38 people had been killed due to railroad accidents. That's no coincidence. I'm sorry to say privatization kills. Thatcher lied to people died. That, that's all. Thank you, comrade. What strikes me is um, how common actually this is. Um, I I drove uh, over the road for a while and uh, before I uh, uh, drive locally now, and it doesn't matter if it's a large uh, national trucking company or if it's a, a small trucking company, the, the same imperatives are sort of in place. PSR really is just a different expression of the same uh I don't know, sort of transcorporate imperative, which is to grind away all any any inconvenience really um, that stands between the shareholder and their profit. Uh, if it's a small company, it becomes a company owner. I mean, the, the capitalist. And uh, I don't know. This is something that actually any worker understands. Any worker understands this situation. It doesn't matter what their political persuasion is. Um, you talk to a uh, conservative, you talk to a liberal, doesn't matter what they vote. If you talk to them about East Palestine, they know that the people that live in that community, they got screwed. And uh, as did the workers uh, for the railroad company. It's just, it's, it's 90 seconds. All right. Thank you, comrade. Sorry, I keep doing this. Uh, Thatcher didn't privatize British rails. British rails got privatized in 1993 by a guy named Sir John uh, John Major, 
Sir John Major privatized British Rails. Uh, Thatcher was actually adamant that the rail system could not be privatized, that some things just needed to remain under the public guys. Just to, just to clear that up. Thank you for that, comrade. Oh, and Maggie was right about something. Um, but my question was, um, it had been mentioned earlier that Norfolk Southern let a worker get charged. Um, which worker was that exactly? And I know no corporate person was charged. Thank you. Well, I don't think anybody's been charged yet. Uh, there was rumblings that uh, one of the workers might have fallen asleep, and they're going to try to pin it on on them. But uh, as of right now, there's been no charges against anybody. But rather the blame fall on the workers than take any responsibility for their undercut and all, all safety and maintenance. Thank you. Yeah, as the resident Canadian communist here, I don't know too much about the railroads, but I was a child when our liberal government literally privatized it. I remember being big on the news, so I just want to apologize about that, especially for the merger. Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask is, correct me if I'm wrong, but there were like four or five other derailments since, since then, correct? Or is, or is I'm adjusting too much news? Thank you. Well, that's just four or five Norfolk Southern derailments that have been in the news. Derailments average around three a day in the U.S., unfortunately. All right. Thank you, comrades. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a rhetorical point to uh, what's just said. Uh, the fact that they are trying to pin it on one person falling asleep shows how weak their whole system is. If one bad worker can cause such damage, then obviously uh, it, it still should fall on the, the rail company since you know a system shouldn't operate with one individual having that much power. Thank you for that, comrade. Okay, uh, I just wanted to ask a question. You said three derailments per day is the average. And my second part of the question is, is this just a United States phenomenon or is this around the world three train derailments in any country the same size as the U.S. more or less? Well, three derailments is a U.S. thing. Derailments are up everywhere. In Greece recently, there was a major passenger train derailment where there was a lot of deaths. Um, luckily, we haven't had that with the passenger trains yet, but I fear it's around the corner. Thank you, comrade. Um, just one small correction on that. I forget which year, maybe sometime around 2013 or so, um, but there was a new corridor in the Pacific Northwest. They had opened up with a supposed um, new fixture of train or new kind of trains that could go at a certain speed. And of course, they were not able to do that around a certain corner. And I think that was a passenger train derailment that might have killed a couple people, but I'm hazy on what exactly that was. Yeah, I live in Oregon and I can recall that happening in the Pacific Northwest. There was a passenger train derailment, but it definitely doesn't happen as much as the uh, the other trains here. All right, we can go ahead and go back to the presentation now. Thank you, comrades. A timeline of the aftermath. February 3rd was the derailment. Toxic chemicals spilled into East Palestine, Ohio, including vinyl chloride, ethyl acrylate, and isobutylene. Later reports revealed that there were more chemicals on the train than originally thought. The town is evacuated shortly after. Residents are instructed that they may return February 8th. 
February 6th, responders set fire to the spilled chemicals under the assumption that it was better than letting it seep into the groundwater. Toxic smoke is released into the air. Water and air samples taken by the company are deemed safe. Norfolk Southern offers $25,000 payments to the town, amounting to $5 per person. In an open letter, Norfolk Southern Railway President and CEO Alan Shaw stated that the company was committing $1 million to a community support fund as a down payment on the contribution to rebuilding the village. Uh, February 15th, East Palestine Town Hall. Residents are angry and complain about sickness and skin irritation, dead pets and livestock, poison streams. They demand action. Reps for Norfolk Southern do not show up, citing safety concerns. Funny how that works. February 16th, Governor DeWine requests federal aid. The plume of toxic smoke finally dissipates on February 17th. Also on February 17th, FEMA arrives. February 19th, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg sends a letter to Norfolk Southern accusing them of putting profits over safety. February 21st, U.S. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan announced that his agency ordered Norfolk Southern to conduct all necessary actions associated with the cleanup from the East Palestine train derailment. The rail operator will be required to continue cleaning up the contaminated soil and water and transport it safely. Reimburse the EPA for cleaning services and attend public meetings at the EPA's request and share information. If Norfolk Southern does not comply, the company will be ordered to pay triple the cost, according to Reagan. February 23rd, the NTSB released its initial findings that blame a faulty wheel bearing on one of the cars for the disaster, calls it 100% preventable, confirming RWU's earlier statement. The same day, Buttigieg, who is its Secretary of Transportation, finally visits East Palestine and tours the wreck site. On February 24th, Biden condemns Norfolk Southern on ABC, but he does not visit, instead opting to go to Ukraine. The mayor of East Palestine calls it a slap in the face. Norfolk Southern forks over 300K. And as you can see on the screen here, this is a, a cartoon drawing that appeared in a, a local newspaper here in the Staten Island Advance. And you can see it, it shows a, a lake with a, a toxic lake. Uh, you see a dead dog by a tree in the background. You see the kid coughing. You see what it appears to be. Could be a dog, could be a pat paw sticking up in the water. What also looks like chicken feet sticking up in the water. And the, the man saying, good news, Biden flew to Ukraine to give Zelensky $500 million in additional aid. Also on February 24th, crews began removing tracks at the train derailment site, a day after the EPA approved Norfolk Southern's remediation plans. Both parties confirmed to ABC News. The soil and gravel beneath the tracks will be excavated and sent away for proper disposal off-site. Norfolk Southern said, 
there are nearly 2,000 feet of rail to be removed. So far, approximately 4,832 cubic yards of contaminated soil and 1.8 million gallons of liquid waste have been collected for disposal from the derailment site, according to the Ohio Governor's Office, which cited the Ohio EPA. Chances are good that a large number of dioxins from burning the chemicals have been released into the surrounding area. They are dangerous and direct exposure contaminate crops and livestock. It is unknown the effect this will have in the future. February 27th, crews began removing tracks at the train derailment site. A day after the EPA approved Norfolk Southern's remediation plans, both parties confirmed to ABC News. The soil and gravel beneath the tracks will be excavated and sent away for proper disposal off-site, Norfolk Southern said. There are nearly 2,000 feet of rail to remove. March 14th, the state of Ohio files a federal lawsuit against NS, alleges the railroad violated state and federal law and recklessly endangered the residents and natural resources. They are seeking monetary damages, civil penalties, and a definitive statement of NS responsibility. All right, we'll stop for another round of questions and comments. Thank you. Uh, I think I'm speaking on behalf of everybody. I'm just, again, annoyed that the CEOs will basically pay nothing, do nothing, don't care. Oh, just go in my yacht, whatever, Get my kill my workers to clean it up. It's just, it's freaking annoying. I'm so sick of it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Um, yeah, and you may, I don't know, you might, you might get to it later. Uh, I just was going to ask about the Derail Act that was proposed uh, in Congress by, what is it, uh, Rokana and something, something Delucio. Um, it's an acronym. They figured out a way to make this uh, response to what happened in East Palestine fit into the word derail, decreasing emergency railroad accident instances locally. And uh, anyways, it is inadequate and nonsense. Um, but um, I just thought I would bring it up. And if you haven't planned on discussing it, that's totally cool. I, you know, I didn't actually, I wasn't expecting to learn anything about it until here just now. Uh, so I thought I would ask about it. Thank you. All right. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, it seems like all this stuff's happened before, like in the late 1800s, the railroads are doing the same thing, like cutting back all these workers um, to try to save money, making all these workers take on extra jobs, and it led to all these disasters. It just seems like history is like repeating itself, which just shows that like, you know, we really need to nationalize these things because they're still operating under the same system they were operating under before, which is the profit system. And that's what that's what's leading them to do these things. Um, so I think if we nationalize things, we could take it out of that realm. Um, and fix things once and for all. And I just wanted to add, um, I was listening to some podcast and it was saying how maybe like five or 10 years ago, they filmed this movie in the area where like the disaster was. In the movie, there was a disaster and uh, all the all the residents had to evacuate. Well, they didn't have a big budget. So they used a lot of the local residents in that area to kind of play the parts of the civilians. And it's just ironic because now these people who played the extras in that video, in that movie, are reliving it in real life. So I just wanted to add that. I thought it was interesting. Thank you for that, comrade. I didn't actually know about that. Yeah, I did not know that the state of Ohio had actually filed a federal lawsuit. My question was, 
didn't Joe Biden and the executive office say they would protect Norfolk Southern from any lawsuits? Thank you. I don't know if they said they would protect Norfolk Southern from any, any lawsuits, but there was a, a specific lawsuit. There's a specific case uh, with a worker against Norfolk Southern, and that's being appeared before the Supreme Court right now, and the Biden administration is backing Norfolk Southern in that case specifically. Right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just remembered something. A few classes ago, um, comrades mentioned how not even Reagan, liberal god Reagan, he couldn't he couldn't force private rail workers to to not strike. He only did federal. And now Biden, Mr. Socialist Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, he forced private workers to go back. Thank you. That's not true. As we we went over in our uh, last class on the rail strike. Uh, the Railway Labor Act has in it provisions that can prevent any strike on the railroads. Essentially, uh, outside of strikes over contracts, it has to be over, there's a threshold. Basically, it has to go before an arbitrator, and the arbitrator has to rule whether or not there's a, it's a strike that's allowed. And as the work, railroad workers have first tried to strike over the attendance policies associated with precision scheduled railroading, last January, and the arbitrator blocked that. Once the strike authorization vote was issued last July, Biden instituted a presidential emergency board, which triggered the whole Railway Labor Act process. Eventually, it led to legislation that blocked the strike. Any strike could be blocked on the railroads as long as it follows the Railway Labor Act process. All right, thank you, comrades. Yeah, I just think it's important to remember, too, that this isn't even this company's first time with this sort of industrial accident that has killed people. In 2005, I think in South Carolina, Norfolk Southern had a major accident, spilled like 50 tons of chlorine gas, which killed nine people and sent like hundreds of people to the hospital. And they were only ever fined like $4 million. So, you know, without enough pressure on, they obviously don't see a need to change. That's it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. So I'm looking at the Derail Act bill right now. It's a really short bill. It's only got 24 points, and it really only has to do with them notifying, uh, the company notifying uh, the uh, transport secretary's department about what materials are on the train or not, and also notifying not later than 24 hours after any train derailment, uh, whether or not uh, uh, inhalation is dangerous. So it just has to do with notifying. It has nothing to do with increasing infrastructural demand, getting production and uh, repair to the railroads themselves, fixing any uh, systems uh, that are just essentially cramming as much uh, material onto a car as fast as possible with the minimal amount of workers possible. It's got nothing. It, it, it's a paper tiger. All right. Thank you, comrade. Standard smoke and mirrors from uh, from the liberals. That's that's fantastic. This uh, again, um, I, I said it before. It's, it's not the greatest point in the world, but it is something that's pretty fundamental when I talk to people, um, and that's that any worker absolutely a hundred percent understands this situation. They know exactly what is happening. They hear East Palestine happens, then they hear Democratic politicians have come up with what they would cast as a solution, the Derail Act, um, and then you learn, oh, actually. It's nothing. It's going to get nothing done to actually address the root of the problem. Hopefully we are the ones who are able to go to them 
um, and explain um, what the root of the problem is. Anyways, that's it. All right, thank you, comrade. I could give a, another, another little bit of slides. I found uh, more information on a timeline. There was a gap there on those slides between February 27th and March 14th. Here's a little filler from between that time period. All right, go ahead. March 12th, a nationwide safety advisory is issued if the investigators discover that in some of the derailed cars, aluminum coverings meant to protect safety valves melted. March 3rd, results of health assessment surveys reveal a variety of symptoms reported by East Palestine residents after the, the derailment. Of the nearly 170 people surveyed who were seen by a doctor, 74% reported headaches, 64% reported anxiety, 61% reported coughing, 58% reported fatigue or tiredness, and 52% reported irritation, pain, or burning of the skin. March 4th, another Norfolk Southern freight train derails in Ohio, this time in Springfield, about 200 miles southwest of East Palestine. 28 cars derail, Norfolk Southern official Craig Barner soon says, downing large power lines, knocking out power, and temporarily prompting shelter-in-place orders for nearby homes. March 6th, after the derailment in East Palestine, investigators discovered that hot bearing sensors detected a wheel bearing heating up miles before it eventually failed but didn't alert the train's crew until it was too late, according to the NTSB's preliminary report. March 7th, a Norfolk Southern conductor is killed after being struck by a dump truck in Cleveland. The tragedy prompts the NTSB to launch an in-depth investigation into the safety practices and culture of the company. March 8th, the NTSB says it has opened a special investigation into safety practices at Norfolk Southern because of five significant accidents since December 2001, including the East Palestine derailment. The Federal Railroad Administration, the primary rail safety regulator, announced that it would conduct a 60-day safety assessment of Norfolk Southern. In March 9th, a U.S. Senate panel holds a hearing on the train derailment on East Palestine as lawmakers on both sides of the aisle call for answers and action in the wake of disaster. Highlights of the hearing, drinking water and air quality to whether their crops or livestock are contaminated. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw declined to give an answer when asked whether he'd stop the company's plan to repurchase $7.5 billion of its shares. On top of the $12.8 billion in share repurchases, it has done since 2018 until safety measures have been implemented to reduce the risk of future derailments and crashes. Allen said he will commit to continuing to invest in safety without detailing what is and what is not included in Norfolk Southern's safety plan. All right, we've got about 15 minutes for any more questions and comments on this. All right, we've got some hands, you have the floor. So I don't think anyone's brought it up yet, but like as Biden was going to Ukraine, like simultaneously Trump 
went to East Palestine. So like, it's it's just really stupid by the Democrats. It's like it's like a easy like Republican like propaganda, easy virtual signaling because they're not doing anything for them. But like they probably secured the votes of the people in that area that haven't given up on anyone helping them. So yeah. Uh, well, on its face, it's a, a propaganda victory for the Republicans. But uh, Trump was his own worst enemy in that trip. He handed out bottled water. Apparently, it was uh, decade, ex- decades old, expired. Trump-branded water, probably from some of his old casinos that he was just trying to get, get rid of. So he, he didn't exactly help his cause when he went there. All right. Thank you for that, comrades. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I just want to say that that no one other than tonight and Thursday night repeated, no one in America uh, will hear or be able to see what we've seen tonight. Uh, this is probably the best presentation that anyone could ever see on this, uh, and I have to applaud it. And if you turned into uh, ABC, CNN, or even PBS, a public broadcast vision, you will not see a presentation like that. And and this is fantastic. Everything else put together. Kudos. Thank you, comrade. And of course, as we know, uh, right now the media is more focused with painting a picture that Ukraine needs more and more money and resources to fight Russia than the people in the United States, which just ghosts, you know, that's just the thing that's been the status quo for years and years and years under American imperialism, but it really highlights that. Comrade, you have the floor. Thank you. Speaking of Ukraine, I would just like to point out that this incident is the best talking point that we can have for why we should not be funding the war in Ukraine, right? We're sending $500 billion to Ukraine while our infrastructure is crumbling. If we nationalized our services here, these things simply would not be happening at at the rate that they are. And we're going to, in the next few months, and it's already happening, we're going to be getting apologists. Oh, this is just the cost of doing business. These things happen all the time. A quick Wikipedia search on rail derailments in China, and we can criticize China all we want, but they have nationalized their rail service since 20, let's see, I'm going through, in the last 10 years, there have been only eight derailments. One of them was because the tracks were manually removed. Another one was because of a mudslide. Uh, another one was because a truck ran into the railway. Right. As far as I can tell, maybe one or two of them was caused because of lack of, you know, safety measures. Right. Whereas we get, you know, eight derailments a week, and that's a good week. Right. That's a safe week. So these incidents are completely avoidable, and they are only caused because of the greed and profit motives of our current system in place. And a an alternative is absolutely possible, right? So use this incident as a talking point to discuss, you know, not only the the defunding of the war in Ukraine, but also the necessity to improve the infrastructure, not just the railways, but of our roads, of our schools, and of all of our public amenities for all Americans. Imagine $500 billion back in the American people. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Comrade honestly gave a pretty good answer to the question I was going to ask in a way where my question was, what campaigns can we push for as a solution to this problem? Thank you. Well, Railroad Workers United is on a push for nationalization of the railroads. 
Uh, and, you know, Larry hit that. You can tie it with the Ukraine. Another thing we could push for, appealment of the Railway Labor Act. It is the enactment of the process from the Railway Labor Act that prevented the strike last year that was on these safety issues. Whoever workers were able to strike and affect the economy the way they planned, maybe we would have had some action on these deterioration of the rail industry and the railroads in general. Great. Thank you, comrade. When you're talking to people who are not politically active about Ukraine, the best argument you can make without even bringing up all the details and all that is just simply, why are we funding a foreign state with our taxpayer dollars while this thing in Ohio is going on? I think that's the best way to talk to like normies, to people who aren't politically active, um, for people who, you know, are going to look at you weirdly if you go into all these details about, oh, Ukraine is a fascist state and like all these details of, but for those who ask further questions, then you can elaborate, well, there was a coup in 2014 that brought a far right government to power, and you can elaborate from there. But just going in when talking to normal people, as Comrade brought up, this is our best argument. Um, rhetorically against funding the Hitlerite regime in Ukraine. And I say Hitlerite because it is a Hitlerite regime in terms of banning the Communist Party, banning the trade union movement, Stefan Bandera, etc. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to say as well that uh, uh, I'm from Ohio. I'm from the Midwest. And so I know that Midwest people see a lot of different problems when it comes to the infrastructure uh, decaying and falling apart. This explosion happened in the Ohio River Basin. The Ohio River infamously has coal barges that tip over and, and release uh, hundreds of pounds of coal into the river. You know, people where I'm from in Cincinnati would joke about you getting a third eye from being in the Ohio River because of the environmental stuff. Is, it's just so bad. There's also a bridge that crosses over that river that I used to go over called the Brent Spence Bridge. That bridge has been falling into the river for about 10, 20 years now. Um, emergency shoulders just crashing down into the water. Uh, and it's a double-decker bridge. And one of those decks is actually held up by a hydraulic jack, which you can see when you're driving northbound on I-75. So I know that for the Midwest, for the workers there especially, you can really hit home on we're letting our infrastructure crumble and deteriorate while we're sending money over to Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, wherever. And that's why we need to bring back this money into our communities and actually build the infrastructure that's necessary. You can use that to kind of steer them in the direction of socialism, because of course we know that would be what would help to ail all these problems. I'll go ahead and take the two hands that we have up. The time is 9.17. I just had a thought recently that I find all of this slightly funny. And back when the pandemic started, there was a lot of hoopla about possibly the administration using the NDAA to take over production of some privately owned factories just to make masks. And we can't do that because the market. And then all of a sudden, like there's zero talk about, well, the administration, since this is the rail network is something vital to national security. And they proved that when they shut down the rail strike. Um, is not doing this exact same thing. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Comrade, in mind that with the crumbling infrastructure, I think when Biden visited Pittsburgh, one of our bridges collapsed. It's like kind of show how terrible our infrastructure is. Thank you, comrade. And I remember 
maybe comrades can recall as well, in the last decade, there was a really big thing that happened in Florida where there was a, I want to say a pedestrian bridge that went over an interpass that went ahead and collapsed because there was such shoddy regulations involved. And I'm sure that I think it was like six six hours or something that the workers got out there and set up that bridge. So it was really rushed. And of course, when any kind of pressure was actually put on it, like you would see in everyday working people traveling, it gave in and collapsed. And I believe at least killed one person, if not more. So I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up something else that uh, Norfolk Southern tried to pull after the disaster. Um, as we all know from the last class we did, uh, sick days was part of the, the strike issues. And as uh, throughout the aftermath, not shortly after the train derailment, Norfolk Southern announced they were going to offer their employees sick days, uh, seven paid sick days. But recently, a letter was sent to the Department of Transportation that th that offering of sick days was contingent on the railroad workers accepting automated inspection of the trains. Basically, no one would double check and make sure trains are safe. So even after East Palestine, Norfolk Southern is attempting to reduce inspections even more and make it, the trains even more unsafe in exchange for sick days. Thank you, comrade. And what good does sick days do if you're on a train that's going to derail? <laughs> so... Yeah, um, that was what you what you referenced about uh, what happened in Florida. Yeah, that was the FIU uh, bridge collapse. Uh, unfortunately, um, I don't believe they even did any computer simulations of you know bridge uh, integrity of any, anything of that sort. At least uh, six people died. Um, one motorist and five uh, sorry five motorists and uh, yeah uh, six serious and uh, four minor injuries, uh, six deaths, one worker and five motorists. So that happened back in 2018, and uh, I remember back in high school when I when they had a field day in my engineering class talking about that, you know, discussing the repercussions of not simulating uh, your builds and uh, your designs. So yeah, that definitely uh, had an impact on our community. Thank you, comrade. And it just goes to show that in the United States, you have a mixture of old infrastructure falling into disrepair and literally crumbling because nothing's being done to either replace it or upgrade it. And then you have new infrastructure, which gets built shoddy, their corners cut and different ways to save money for the people that make it. So it just goes to show how much our capitalism is messing up our entire infrastructure that we use to live and work. Uh, yeah, this with the infrastructure, this reminds me of like having to rebuild it and stuff, but how much we've, I kind of feel like I've kind of been robbed of something I've never been able to have with the where rail industry, where we don't have like trains that can take us from like LA to like New York or really like, or just other places where we don't really have like a bunch of like rail system either. And instead we just get replaced with just cars and stuff and it's just so much more less efficient, more dangerous. And it's, it's so much easier just to screw up when you're driving a car or anybody where they could just do a very simple, easy mistake and people could just die. And that just happens all the time. And I feel like we should have just been having just been built on on rails and stuff and use that mainly. But we've just been regressing, regressing and just haven't really been 
using that as an infrastructure where it's so much cheaper, it's so much easier. You could just have so much more space to for your community for whatever you'd want if you just could just use rail systems instead and instead of just having highways and so many cars and parking lots and stuff around that and it just degrades your environment your community but you can't we just been revolving around the car instead 90 seconds that's all yeah i just wanted to add another um incident 2007 april up here we had the uh i35w bridge collapse which killed 13 people had 50 people in the hospital for blunt trauma um, there was about 39 million in compensation that was paid out to the victims. Um, the company that designed the bridge settled out of court for about nine, and the replacement bridge cost about 234 million, all for one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Car versus rail thing. I think I saw a video about how like there's like some massive highway that's being built, like eight lanes or something, and like. It's just hardly being questioned, but it takes lots of resources and won't even make anything more efficient stuff. And simultaneously, it's degrading the environment. And like it would have been cost a small fraction to just build some high-speed rail or whatever. But the media is like hardly talking about the massive highway thing, even though it should be controversial. Whereas the even the tiny, I suppose, high-speed rail project in California, it's like constantly degraded by the media even though like the highway thing's going even worse. They're just like not willing to even accept it as a possibility that trains could be a mode of transport that people could rely on. Yeah, quick comment. I remember throughout the class, we've been talking about how most other countries have civilian rail crashes, derailments. Uh, the reason that doesn't happen in the US is because we don't have those things. <laughs> That's the simple answer. If we don't have any, uh, civilian transport rails, then we can't really have any crashes for them, right? Um, and trucks will be far worse. Rails, you know, you can fall asleep at the train and you might not crash, but if you fall asleep as a truck driver, you're definitely going to be crashing, right? And these truck drivers are working 12-hour shifts and they only carry one boxcar. A train, 20, 30, 40, 50 boxcars, no problem. It's just less efficient and if a truck crashes, that whole road is shut down. So now that's causing traffic jams. Worst comes to worst, if a train derails, right? If it's a granary, that rail might be shut down. But we're, that's old technology. We know how to clean those up now. But how do you get around a truck that's blocked an eight-lane road? Now all those other trucks are. It's, it's just a logistical nightmare that makes things worse. And it solves a problem that is, does not exist, right? Improve our rail systems. Build high-speed rails. It's that simple. If literal peasants can do it, how? why can't we do it, right? Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. We're going to wrap up our class now. I want to thank all the comrades for all their wonderful contributions tonight. Yes, thank you. We're going to end with a, a rendition of the song Railroad Man from J.P. Wright, who is a member of Railroad Workers United. I can sit Yeah.
Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit. <laughs>